Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I am Frida Ballard, a member of OPIU Local 39. Your support makes Labor Radio and all the great programming on WORT possible. Hi, I am Matthew Thompson, and I'm a member of UE 1186. Today we discuss union mobilization in Minnesota, learn about labor wins in Michigan, explore changes in child labor laws, and get updates on the state's legislative maps, issues, and much more. And if you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of WORT and Labor Radio. There will be a rally in Milwaukee on Monday to put a Wisconsin Elections Commissioner, Bob Spindle, out of a job. Labor Radio spoke with Yuseli Flores, the racial justice and equity advocate for the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign, about the rally and the reasons for wanting to fire Spindle. There will be a rally in Milwaukee on Monday, February 19th, at the Wisconsin Black Historical Society. Can you tell us about that? Last week, Thursday, Nick Ramos, our executive director, testified virtually in front of the Wisconsin Elections Commission, along with a number of other folks who were testifying or submitting written statements asking Bob Spindell to resign because of his prominent role as a fake elector during the 2020 presidential election. As a sitting member of the Wisconsin Elections Commission, he also openly bragged about wiping black and brown voters off of the voter rolls in Milwaukee, suppressing voices and our votes. We know that the Wisconsin Elections Commission should be a nonpartisan body that should advance the cause of safe and fair and free elections and not overturn them. When Nick Ramos confronted Bob Spindell at the Wisconsin Elections Commission meeting, he said, there is no white Republican that has done more for the black community than me. That stunned a lot of the folks who were on the call. It stunned folks who have been working so hard to make sure that the Wisconsin Elections Commission is a nonpartisan party for the state. We just realized that we need to have folks like him out of office and out of his position. So we are hosting a rally at the Wisconsin Black Historical Society Museum on President's Day, not ironically, because he did try to take over the presidency along with some other fake electors. It's at 5 p.m. The doors open at 4 p.m. again on Monday the 19th. We know that calling out fake electors is to remind folks that we need a sound elections commission that is definitely away from any partisanship or any type of agenda that doesn't value people first. What is the rally called and where is it located? The rally is called Firebob Milwaukee Rally. It is located at the Wisconsin Black Historical Society, 2620 West Center Street in Milwaukee. The doors open at four and the program starts at five. And if folks do fill out the RSVP sign, we have free shirts. They have a huge hashtag and it says Firebob on them. For more information, listeners can go to the Firebob Rally on Facebook and sign up. Sponsors of the event include the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign, Voces de la Frontera, Wisconsin Fair Maps Coalition, and All Voting is Local. That was Yuseli Flores. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Labor Radio. 
A local immigrants' rights group is getting out the word on a government program that offers protection to undocumented workers involved in labor disputes. Workers who face improper, unsafe, or illegal actions by their employer, especially those like the majority of American workers who do not have the protection of a labor union, face the difficult decision of taking some kind of action against a more powerful boss. This is even more difficult for undocumented workers, who, in addition, face the threat of legal charges or deportation if their undocumented status is exposed by their employer, a situation which bosses have been shown to exploit. Now, the federal government has clarified the steps that undocumented workers can take to protect their rights under the law. Affected workers can also get documentation and temporary protections from immigration restrictions while their labor case is pending. The Deferred Action for Labor Enforcement Program, D-A-L-E, pronounced DALE, was announced by the Federal Department of Homeland Security in January 2023. Examples of disputes that might give a worker protection under DALE include those around pay, overtime, and mandated breaks. It also protects workers' rights to unionize. On Saturday, the Madison office of the Milwaukee-based immigrants' rights group Fosas de la Frontera gave a presentation on DALE at the Office of Centro Hispano in Madison. Nindic Figueredo, the Madison organizer for the Essential Workers' Rights Network of Voces de la Frontera, spoke to Labor Radio before the presentation. Figueredo described DALE. DALE, the for action for laborers in dispute. These programs give the opportunity to laborers who are under a labor dispute to get employment permit, a social security, and also the protection against deportation until the labor dispute is going on. Here in Wisconsin, the Essential Workers Right Network is one of the first ones to bring this program to laborers. Figueredo sees the need for the word about DALI to spread to labor unions and community organizations. No much unions know about this, and no much organizations know about DALE. Figueredo described what Madison area workers who might be interested in the protections of DALE can do. You can come to the Essential Workers Right Network, and we can help you to initiate this process. At the Madison area, you can call me at the 470-454-4508. And if you want to know more about DALE, we can go and to you and give it the short presentation and you can understand more. Figueredo reiterated the program is designed to provide protections to undocumented workers involved in workplace labor rights issues. It's not a path for citizenship, but given to you the opportunity to get the permit for work in the U.S., uh, social security number, and also you can get your driver's license. That was Nindic Figueredo, the Madison organizer for the Essential Workers' Rights Network of Voces de la Frontera. Area workers who are interested in DALE can contact Nindic at 470-454-4508. The Workers' Rights Network and the South Central Federation of Labor, or SCUFFLE, can also help. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jaboski. When you walk through the garden, you gotta watch your back. The bosses at a Wisconsin business are going to jail for their actions around the death of five of their employees. Carol Weidel has a story. Safety violations in 2017 led to the deaths of five workers and serious injury to others at a corn mill in Cambria, Wisconsin. 
In October 2023, a federal jury convicted Didion Milling Vice President Derek Clark and Safety Superintendent Sean Messner of obstructing an investigation and falsifying records. This week, Clark and Messner were each sentenced to two-year prison terms. A third man, who cooperated and testified at a trial for his former colleagues, received a lighter sentence, a sentence of probation. Judge James Peterson said that a pervasive culture of regulatory defiance and dishonesty led to the explosion. Reporter Ed Trelaven of the Wisconsin State Journal reported on these workplace deaths. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. As the U.S.-supported Israeli assault on Gaza enters its fifth month, some union members are organizing internally to support the cause of the Palestinians. An SEIU workers spoke to Greg Jabowski about an initiative in their union. The U.S.-supported Israeli assault on Gaza is now entering its fifth month now with ongoing attacks on Rafah, the small border town in the south of the Gaza Strip that is filled with refugees fleeing attacks further in the north. Near the end of last week, after months of receiving suggested resolution language from locals and labor federations across the country, including from the AFL-CIO affiliate here, the South Central Federation of Labor, or SCUFFLE, the national AFL-CIO issued a short statement on the Gaza siege. The statement placed blame the consequence of the Hamas attack of October 7th, but it did contain the word ceasefire, a demand still rejected by Israel and the Biden administration. Meanwhile, Rank-and-file groups within unions, some part of the AFL-CIO, some not, have pushed for a more comprehensive labor response to the ongoing attacks. Purple Up for Palestine, consisting of interested members of the Service Employees International Union, or SEIU, which is not part of the AFL-CIO, is one of those groups. Mark Ostapiak, a worker for the city and county of San Francisco and a member of SEIU Local 1021 in Northern California, spoke to Labor Radio this week about Purple Up for Palestine. Purple for Palestine came out of a group of rank and file and staff members in SEIU. Purple, you know, that's that's the SEIU color that everybody recognizes us by. You know, if they see us at a rally, you see the purple shirts, that's us, that's SEIU. So as to not sort of say that we are some sort of like official caucus in the union, we decided to use Purple Up for Palestine to sort of avoid any disagreements between the leaderships and that we're taking on, you know, SEIU's name to do something that hasn't been officially sanctioned. Ostapiak listed what Purple Up for Palestine is calling for from its national union. Join the growing call for unions across the world to stop genocide of Palestinians. Call for an end to the siege on Gaza and the provision of humanitarian aid to Palestinians in Gaza. Pressure President Biden to end military assistance to Israel. Publicly declare support for boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. And lastly, commit to not retaliating against staff or members who support Palestinian liberation. Purple Up for Palestine wrote a petition that is over 1,500 signatures from SEIU members. Ostapiak feels that rank and file pressure has already moved his union's leadership to come out stronger in support of Palestinians. The leadership of SEIU internationally, Mary Kay Henry and the International Executive Board came out with a stronger statement that did call for an immediate ceasefire. And we attribute that statement to our efforts, also efforts in my local SEIU 1021, which came out with this very, very strong and principled statement calling for an immediate ceasefire. Ostapiak described local actions his union is taking to build networks of solidarity with other unions and community groups in the San Francisco Bay Area. 
Currently in the Bay Area, our local, it's called 1021 Members for Palestine. We're working with other unions like Unite Here, teachers organizations and teachers union, Oakland Education Associations to build a conference under the moniker of Bay Area Labor for Palestine. We're building solidarity with other labor organizations, other unions, groups like the Palestine Youth Movement who are doing amazing work with groups like Arab Resource Organizing Center to build the kind of solidarity and labor and community ties that are going to be very, very important moving forward to try to build a just solution and liberation and freedom for Palestine. That was Mark Ostipak of Purple Up for Palestine and SEIU Local 1021. Listeners who are interested can see the petition on Action Network by searching for Purple Up for Palestine and SEIU members can sign there. Also, any worker or union member can go to Labor for Palestine at laborforpalestine.net. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jaboski. Velma Hopkins was a union organizer at R.J. Reynolds Tobacco in Winston-Salem, North Carolina in the 1940s. Keith Steffen has a brief biography of Hopkins for Black History Month. Born in 1909, Velma Hopkins was the oldest of four children. Her father died before she was 10, and the family moved to Winston-Salem. Hopkins later got a job at R.J. Reynolds. Tobacco was king in Winston-Salem for decades. Conditions in the plant were oppressively hot and full of dangerous tobacco dust. African Americans were paid less than whites and women less than men. Blacks had virtually no access to higher paying jobs at R.J. Reynolds. In 1943, the death of a co-worker motivated Hopkins and others to organize a month-long strike with hopes of bringing a union to the company. They were joined by both white and black workers at other jobs until more than 10,000 people walked the picket lines outside the Reynolds headquarters. Despite strong-armed tactics from the police, employers, and media outlets, the workers prevailed, forming Local 22 of the Food, Tobacco, Agricultural, and Allied Workers of America in the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO. Local 22 was racially integrated and led primarily by black women. The only union in the history of Reynolds Tobacco, Local 22 engaged in a series of strikes and campaigns leading to greater job security, wage increases, and other benefits. In 1944, Hopkins threw a switch turning off all the machines in her plant, beginning a strike against low pay, long hours, and poor working conditions. Another major strike occurred in 1947. During the 1940s, Hopkins was one of the local 22 leadership negotiating for pay raises, pay equity, and improved conditions for Reynolds employees. They gained national attention. Woody Guthrie and Paul Robeson both visited Winston-Salem to support Local 22. Hopkins received death threats for her actions. Local press and R.J. Reynolds management engaged in red baiting and anti-union efforts, and Local 22 lost a decertification election in 1950. Her union organizing placed Hopkins in the forefront of the fight for civil liberties in Forsyth County. In the 1940s, they were well ahead of the rest of the nation. She helped blacks prepare for and pass voting tests. She pushed for desegregated schools. She helped create committees to assist the elderly and needy. Hopkins spent her life paving a path for others in the community to enjoy a better life. The work Hopkins did in leading the fight inspired many North Carolinians and helped establish what would become Winston-Salem's black middle class. Velma Hopkins died in 1996. I'm Keith Steffen reporting for Labor Radio. 
Here's a report from the Economic Policy Institute on the weakening of child labor laws. The Economic Policy Institute reports on child labor issues. Nina Mast found that child labor remains a key state legislative issue in 2024. Since 2021, 28 states have introduced bills to weaken child labor laws, and 12 states have enacted them. By contrast, 14 states have introduced bills to strengthen child labor protections already in 2024, up from 11 states in all of 2023, as more state lawmakers recognize the need to address increasing violations and threats to current state and federal standards. Although a number of bills have been introduced in Wisconsin, none have passed. These bills to expand child labor are supported by the Tavern League of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Growers Association, the Association of Wisconsin Tourism Attractions, and Wisconsin Hotel and Lodging Association, among others. Federal laws set an important but weak and increasingly outdated floor for child labor standards. States continue to play essential roles in ensuring that children who work can do so in safe, age-appropriate conditions that don't jeopardize their long-term health development or education. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. Multiple unions and community organizations are preparing for joint action in Minnesota on March 2nd. Frank Emsbach has a story. This spring, thousands of workers all across Minnesota will have expired contracts all at the same time. This is no accident, but the fruits of a strategy implemented over the last 10 years. The result is agreements between many unions and community groups to to engage in actions at the same time in order to magnify their individual strength. The unions involved represent both public and private sector workers and include a broad swath of organized labor in the Minneapolis area. Labor Radio spoke with Amy Stager, a journalist with Workday magazine, and asked her to describe what might happen on March 2nd. Yeah, and so on March 2nd is serving as sort of a deadline for a lot of the union and social demands for many of these workers and community groups. Thousands of essential workers, including healthcare workers, janitors, construction workers, educators and more, even public workers, will all have expired contracts at the same time. And they're all pursuing negotiations right now with their employers or pursuing different campaigns. There's several unions, SEIU Local 26, which represents uh, janitors, security officers, airport workers. Community organizations are also mobilizing on March 2nd. 
There's even community and interfaith organizations as well who uh, will be pushing progressive legislation at the state capitol this year. Um, a worker center, Centro de Trabajadores Unidos en la Lucha, or CETUL, which um, represents a lot of low-wage, low-income workers um, in the city and Minnesota, and uh, uh, Inquilinos Unidos por Justicia, or United uh, Renters for Justice, which oh. uh, focus on renters' rights, and many, many more unions and are involved as well. Do the unions represent both public and private sector workers? Yes, it's both. There's public workers with the city of Minneapolis. There's, you know, private workers as well, security officers. So do you think this is unique? Yeah, it's it's very unique. This kind of cross-sectoral organizing is pretty unique to the United States. You know, it's... Could you explain how this came about? It is more than 10 years in the making. Back in 2011, uh, SEIU locals in Minnesota departed from the SEIU's national campaign, Fight for a Fair Economy, and created Minnesotans for a Fair for a Fair Economy, and put funds towards creating a mobile research communications and policy team that really invested in their collaborations with community groups. And so there have been different campaigns where um, groups have aligned with unions to uh, pressure employers into uh, giving workers their demands. Today, it's culminating in a week of action on March, starting March 2nd. What might those actions be? A lot of them may involve potential strike actions. Uh, we know that the St. Paul Federation of Educators, Local 28th, has a strike authorization vote today. So we will be awaiting those results. The SAU Local 26 also authorized a strike to start on March 2nd. The uh, Laborers uh, 663 also has have scheduled um, a strike authorization vote for next week. Those are uh, public workers with the city of Minneapolis. And then there, there have also been other rallies happening, the Minneapolis Plus, uh, public teachers also held a rally this week with community groups. And we know, too, that other community groups, especially the, the groups demanding uh, social housing and protections for renters, will also be um, having events and actions. The locals and community groups have come together on an ad hoc basis, but it was SEIU Local 26 who years ago stimulated the building of the cross-union and community relationships. But according to Amy, there is no one leader of the March 2nd mobilization. What would you say the key demand is? They really have like four key demands, but I think the main, one of the main demands is dignified work. They're all demanding higher wages that keep up with inflation, uh, retirement pensions, safer working conditions, healthcare access. And there's, there's a strong demand for a labor standards board for the city of Minneapolis that a lot of these groups have also been pushing on as well. That was Amy Stager of Workday Magazine describing the anticipated multi-union mobilization on March 2nd in Minneapolis. I am Frank Emsbach for Madison Labor Radio. The Poor People's Campaign is staging a day of nationally coordinated rallies on Saturday, March 2nd. Keith Steffen has more details. In Madison, the Wisconsin Poor People's Campaign will gather at the State Street steps of the State Capitol at 10.30 on March 2nd. The Mass State House Assembly and Moral March around the square begins at 11 o'clock. They plan to bring demands directly to lawmakers at state capitals on behalf of 140 million poor and low-wealth people nationwide. After speeches at the Capitol, they will gather at the First United Methodist Church. 
Among other goals, they hope to overturn poverty as the fourth leading cause of death in the United States and achieve access to health care for all. The Poor People's Campaign is also trying to register and activate voters leading up to the 2024 presidential election. More information can be found on the Poor People's Campaign website or Facebook page. It's 10.30 a.m. Saturday, March 2nd at the State Capitol. I'm Keith Steffen reporting for Labor Radio. The state of Michigan saw a slate of new laws come into force this week, including the repeal of the state's decade-long right-to-work regime. Labor Radio has more on the legislation. Michigan has officially repealed its right-to-work policy statewide. After several pieces of legislation that were passed in 2023 came into force this week, the state originally enacted the framework in 2012. A trifecta government that came into power after the 2022 statewide elections vowed to make overturning the law a legislative priority and succeeded in passing a repeal last March, along with a prevailing wage law and protections to abortion access. At the law's signing ceremony, Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer said that the repeal was the result of the state government, quote, coming together to restore workers' rights, protect Michiganders on the job, and grow Michigan's middle class, end quote. Despite the name, right-to-work laws do nothing specifically to protect the notion of at-will employment. Rather, the name has been co-opted by state governments looking to restrict union activity beyond the provisions already articulated by the labor-hostile Taft-Hartley Act of 1947. In practice, these laws restrict security agreements between employers and workers' bargaining representatives. Most right-to-work laws in effect today ban what is known as the agency or union shop which oblige non-union members to supply dues to the union representing the workers' interests. Labor leaders like Michigan AFL-CIO President Ron Bieber argue that these security agreements are essential. If you're going to reap the benefits, you ought to be able to be a part of the solution, which means everyone contributing to the strength of the union, end quote. With Michigan's repeal in effect, there are now 27 states plus the territory of Guam whose right-to-work laws remain on the books including Wisconsin, which adopted a right-to-work statute in 2015. The repeal, while a major step forward for the state's labor movement, is restricted to the private sector. Public sector employees across the country are still permitted to opt out of union dues as a result of the 5-4 Janus versus AFSCME decision handed down by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2018. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Sean Hagerup. For listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Frida Ballard. Thanks to editor Frank Emsbach, assistant Robin G, copy editor Simon Gordon, reporters Greg, Greg Jabowski, Janine Ramsey, Carol Weidel, Sean Hagerup, and guest engineer in training Janine Ramsey. Special thanks to Keith Steffen, our reader coordinator, engagement editor Alice Herman, and to all of our readers and the members of IE, IBEW Local 2304 at the WORT Staff Collective. And I'm Matthew Thompson. We would also like to thank all of our generous contributors to Labor Radio and WRT. Please stay tuned for the Blues Cruise with David with, with Dave Wyatt and Professor Bill Clark. <laughs>
probably should have practiced in the <laughs> last. 